my final day. I died a thousand times. My words are left now blind. I hold you close to me. I hold you close to me. Close to me. In the early morning, of Monday, April 21st, 2003, a 70-year-old woman died at her home in Carrie-le-Rouet, France. Cancer ended the life of one of the biggest innovators of jazz, whose honey-coated voice and searing lyrics made her a civil rights icon. All right, we are back with Rockabies today. Oh, Michelle, are we doing Amaro today? I didn't know. Oh, yes. A little are bit we? Amaro. Yes. <laughs> just, this is not a laugh. We're doing a serious show today, and it already starts out with giggles. Wait, I'm going to stop it for two seconds so I can laugh some more. So we are here. For our Rocka babies. And by the way, we have a guest in the house today. We do. Her name is Ava Marie London. She's a big time actress, model, everything extraordinaire. That's a really good name. It's a, it's it a is. really good name. It is. It is. So everybody she, remember that after name. After the song, the aria, right? Ava Maria. More so Ava Gardner. Oh, Ava Gardner. I love Ava Gardner. My dad said I was named after her. Ava Gardner was, she's a savage. She was a savage. <laughs> and Frank Sinatra would tell you that too, because he was madly in love with her. But anyway, so welcome, Ava Marie. You're welcome. Um, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you for being here. So before we get started, we are enjoying some refreshments, you know, because this guest, need, we need lots of refreshments <laughs> before we got started for this guest. <laughs> This is, this is, this, you know what? We needed to start this guest. We needed to do this guest today instead of the first time around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because she's, she warrants it. Yeah. But we're enjoying a fresh, a refreshing, and I have the, everybody can hear the ice. Amaro Angelino. It's a liqueur. It's Would very you? good. Thank you so much. Steven uh-huh. and the gang. So, Lord have mercy. Okay. We're just going to jump right into this, Michelle. All right. We're I'm just going to jump right into it. I mean, I'll just do the quote. Okay. I let you know how I feel about the quotes. And it's from, it's a Frenchman. Um, and the quote is, and actually this, this quote came on a poster that was given to our subject. And I saw it when I read about it. Oh. And I thought, that's brilliant. I have a couple of quotes, but... I love the quote because I think it would it matches her perfectly. Mm-hmm. And she loved the quote as well. It's on a poster that she got. And on the poster that someone gave our subject, it said, I should like to be able to love my country and still love justice. Mm-hmm. And she loved that. Um, and it's by Albert Camus. You're French, so you tell me. Well, that's I'm not right. French, but that's right. I speak, you speak French. French. I speak French. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Richard Pryor once said, "White people had Judy Garland, 
and we had Nina. Hmm. And that is the best you can say about Nina Simone, the high priestess of soul herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she, I mean, both of us have been talking about her for days, you know, we call each other and, yeah. and you watched the documentary. Oh, I watched the so documentary, good. which we'll talk about during the show. And, um, you know, it's so funny because Mary J. Blige, I saw a quote by her that she said, she didn't even know. Nina Simone spoke French herself. She mm-hmm. sang in French, yeah. which you know. And um, she said, I didn't even know what she was saying. And I started crying. Oh, that voice, though. I know. It was like nothing else. It's just her voice wasn't like, and still to this day, it's not like anything. She's unique. Yeah. It, I mean, everything about her, because she kind of had this androgynous voice, too, mm. that was just a bit so powerful and I so knew. passionate and and, and, you know, she chose to use her voice for what we're going to talk about. She, oh, yeah. She chose to use it. She used her art for a lot more. Yeah. She, she you know, Mary made a point. She said that she goes from, you know, <clears throat> Mississippi Goddamn, that's a song that she created, singing it like a church rec- record, but she's cursing out the system in the, mm-hmm. next, in the next system, so in the next minute. So, you know, she said she could sing anything, period, and that's true mm-hmm. about Nina. And yeah. she could play. She could play. Oh, anything. she could seriously play. You We're going to get into her story, but yes. her playing was like yes. out of control. Completely. So <clears throat> I guess we should just start out, just go for it. Mm-hmm. She wasn't born Nina Simone. Nope. She was born Miss Eunice Kathleen Wayman. And she was born at 6 a.m. on February 21st, 1933. And by the way, by the time this show airs, It'll be a few days after her birthday. So happy oh, birthday, Nina. Happy birthday. So yeah. how old, what year is it? It's 2019. 1933. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're already making me laugh. Don't make me I, laugh. Don't make me start laughing. She, <laughs> I don't think we're going to laugh through this show. She, if she had lived, she probably would have been about 78, I think. 85. 85? Wow. Oh, that's right. 15 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um. Well, yeah, she would have been 85 in April when she passed away. Um, she was the sixth of eight children to mm-hmm. J.D., John J.D., and Kate uh, Wayman. And she was born in Tryon, North Carolina, right at my neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. And both of her parents were from South Carolina, by the way. Oh, really? One of them was right. Both of them were kind of by my hometown. It's weird. One, oh, wow. On one edge and the other. By Greenville, one of them, where your grandma lives, um, one of them lived over there by Spartanburg, you know, and the other one is on the other side of Pickens, you know. J.D. was a gifted musician, her dad. He played the harmonica, the banjo, the guitar, and a, a, I don't know what this says, but it says a Jew's harp. I don't know what that is. Hmm. A Jew's harp. I don't know. So I while look Ava that. looked that up, um, he, he played that. You know what? I'll, I'll get to that when I remember that, that he was such a gifted musician, musician because he opened a dry cleaning shop when they, when they moved to North Carolina, he opened a dry cleaning shop and he was very much a entrepreneurial. He took out an ad in the daily newspaper and uh, if you find it, let me know, Aves. And you do? Mm-hmm. What is it? It's this. Interesting. Look at that, Michelle. Oh yeah, I know what those are. <laughs> it's a. It's also known as the jaw harp. 
It's a mouth harp. Ozone yeah, harp. I know. I just didn't know the the other name. It's a lamellophoam instrument consisting of a flexible metal or bamboo tongue. No Interesting. No strings. Wow. It's it's really small. It is. Um, and ever the entrepreneur JT started up. Also, he had a little chair he tucked in like a, a little room next to the dry cleaning equipment, and he had a barber shop too. So he started a barber shop in his dry cleaning shop. Um, hmm. and he was got so busy that he hired a hired someone to to you know help him out. But isn't that funny? A barber shop in a dry cleaning shop. Yeah, I mean, no joke. He had a lot of kids. That's eight kids, you know. Making it work though. Yes, yes. Around 1932, before Nina was born, like a year before Nina was born, Nina's dad J.D. and her older brother John Irvin arrived early at the dry cleaning shop, you know, to open it up like they normally do. And so her dad took out, you know, uh, old newspaper and rolled it really into a tight cylinder to use as kindling. And on this morning, when he lit the match to start the fire, nothing happened. And he tried again with the same result. And after the third time, he went outside up on the roof to see what the problem might be. And that's when he noticed that somebody had put gasoline in an inner tube. Oh. And that they had stuffed it down so that if he lit it, it would catch <gasps> the whole shop on fire. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And that, and that would have destroyed everything. And... Years later, a couple of Nina's siblings claimed that it was a Ku Klux Klan what? that tried to intimidate Thank God their though they dad. caught it. Yeah. Oh, because, that's so sad. Yeah, because the their the organization at that time was had a did have a foothold in that area mm-hmm. of North Carolina, you know. So not long after the shop incident, their rented house that they were renting that they lived in mm-hmm. did catch on fire in the middle of the night. Oh, really? Like, yes. did they find out what happened? No, no. But they said it's just fire is playing a, a big role. It's going to play again. Mm-hmm. It's going to play again. And before Nina, so Nina's born, before she could walk, you know, her family realized that she was a genius. Mm-hmm. They, by the time she was three, they knew and they adored her and they exempted her from like the typical chores of washing mm-hmm. dishes. They really doted on her. Um, and she took it in stride that people thought she was special because, um, you know, her parents insisted that Yes, you're special, um, and you got talent, but they told her, you know, it's God-given, and you just need to be Mm -hmm. grateful for it. So she never really got the big head. You know, her mom became a full-fledged minister um, by now, and her mom traveled around the surrounding countries, you know, counties, I guess, not countries, (laughs) counties. That's that drink already. Um, She's preaching and all that fun stuff. And when Eunice, I'm going to call her Eunice for now, turned four, mm-hmm. her mom took her out on the road with her to open up her events, and she barely reached the pedals, but she played the church piano at four. Yeah, it's amazing. You know? And, um, you know, around 1936, so about four years later after that fire, her dad closed down... Um, uh, wait a minute, let me see this. That's right. Her dad closed down the dry cleaning shop, and he took a job as a cook at the Boy Scouts uh, camp. And when she was barely five, she became his nurse because he was diagnosed with like this intestinal blockage. And her mom had to work and her older mm-hmm. sisters were either at work or at school. And so she had to take care of her dad like day to day as a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. They were very tight. He loved, he adored her. Um, and barely a year later out of that, another fire broke out in the middle of the night. 
That's insane. They kind of felt hexed a little bit, the way yeah, I tell you. you would. Um, it's the second fire that had taken place in their home in six years. And then that That's dry That's so crazy. Shot, I was thinking about fires the other day and then got all panicky about them. You had a dream about it? I don't even want to get into this. It has to do with This Is Us and that <laughs> stupid show. It really affects my life. You know what? That's right. Fire's playing a big role this week. Yeah, it's a big role. We're not talking about This Is Us, gang, who's listening, mm-hmm. but... Everyone who listens to me normally has to hear me talk about that show. It's the best thing. It's such a good show. Anyway, fires were freaking me out this week, and then I had to make sure we had the right insurance, and I was trying to think of an escape plan, and I'm like, now it's coming up again. What would you be your escape plan? We're already derailing. (laughs) I jumped out the window. (laughs) All right, jump out the window. You'd be fine, actually. I just I, I can't twist be, my you know ankle. What? There's nothing you can do to take this bread out of my hand right now. <laughs> Gabby made Gabby brought us bread. And... There's nothing you can do to take this freaking bread out of my hand. I'll kill somebody right now. This bread is so good. <laughs> I mean, I'll set you on fire. <laughs> I will set you on the fire. The fire started bread. over Gabby's bread. I'm sitting here holding Gabby's bread and it's the best thing since life. It's the best thing <laughs> since sliced bread. <laughs> Anyway, and I thought this was going to be a serious episode. <laughs> oh, it's going to be serious. All right. We're going to go from laughing to, oh my God. I think most episodes we laugh and cry. I know. This, this, crying. this is going to be no different. <laughs> God help us. Um, so Nina's brother, you know, when he saw his how, how talented his sister was, mm-hmm. he said, insisted that his parents use one of the, one of some payments because he paid them, you know, when he worked outside of the home to buy their first piano. Um, and it was an upright piano. I don't know what that means, upright, that the neighbor upright. wanted to sell. It's, it means exactly what, it's upright. So instead of a grand piano, yeah, it's just like a piano against the wall. You know, the pianos you see, like a piano against the wall. Do they have wheels or something that go up against the wall? No, like you, it, an upright <laughs> piano, like a piano that's, <laughs> wow. So kids, we're finding out that Melissa has never seen a piano before. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between a grand piano? A and grand like a... piano is like the one, the big one, and that looks like this, yeah. <laughs> like a Steinway or something. Yeah, but you can have uprights. Steinways can be uprights too. Uprights are like pianos in a home. Okay, okay. Rarely... A grand is the, the long, and I'm doing a terrible job explaining that this catches well. dust mostly because you know people don't play most of their pianos. That's that. You, that's you totally do, true. A lot of people don't. But anyway. So, <laughs> her mother was a very um, strict woman, she mm. being a minister, and she disdained anything, any music that wasn't religious. She mm-hmm. did not let them listen to blues, jazz, Tin, Man, tin Pan Alley. I saw that, and I thought I'd write that down because it said Tin Pan Alley. Um, and she referred to gospel music as real music. And so, But it makes sense, though, for her mm-hmm. to be, because to be that good... Like a little kid's not born with a piano at their fingers. Like she was all classically trained. So, oh yes, I know oh, we're, yes, we're getting to that. Was. But I'm saying, like, you'd have she to could be play being by that ear, young. You would yeah, have she to be disciplined. So, yes, because we're gonna well, we'll get to that in two seconds. But um, uh, skipping again. <laughs> I know you're doing a sippy poo. I know. No, I said skipping. Oh, skipping again. <laughs> sipping <laughs> and skipping. You know what? It's the same thing. That right, darn thing. You know what? It's still early yet. We got a lot. 15 got, minutes. Oh, 15 my God. It's, derailed it's 10 already, times I know. Already. Good, good, good. <laughs> so um, so the fun thing about this is that um, JD knew that Nina 
liked regular music like they all mm. did, but behind mm. his wife's back, when she would go to the store or whatever, he would have Nina play like regular songs, oh, that's and he'd be looking out when she'd come and go, okay, now she, here she comes, so and then he'd make a whistle. And that would segue into her, one of her mom's favorite hymns as she's walking into the door. That's in nuts to be, how old was she, was six years yeah. old? Yeah, it's that. If That's that. insane. It's awesome. Wow. So by the time she was 10, um, she was so accomplished at the keyboard that she became the regular church pianist. Mm-hmm. And it, at like Sam Cooke, church was an all-day affair for her that began with the morning service it continued through Sunday school, and it finished with the evening, with the six o'clock evening prayers. She also played Wednesday nights at prayer oh, wow. meetings. She played a lot as a ten-year-old, and then Friday nights at choir practice. Her perfect pitch allowed her to mm-hmm. identify any note, and she could play something back after a single hearing. Yeah, and no, during- she was magical. Like there was no Wasn't question. She- because even perfect pitch, you can be a very, very amazing musician. Because perfect pitch is something that you're just born with. Like wow. perfect pitch, you could say, um, like C flat or C six mm. flat, and she could just sing it. Wow. Yeah, that's play it she too. Just, well, playing it's easier because you can see it. Right. But, but perfect singing. pitch is wow. well, it's not even just the singing. It's like she'd know exactly what note it is. Wow. Perfect pitch is if if I told you like. D7, yeah. that you just sing D7. And coming from a black church, you know, growing up in one, there are a lot of amazing singers. Actually, you'd have to sing really high to sing D7 anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure Whitney Houston could do it. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, to come and go into that, because the great thing about black churches is there, it's very improvisational. Mm-hmm. You know, like what we're saying about her, like somebody would just catch the Holy Ghost and then they start singing and keep the song going for like 20, 20 years like me with this bread, you know what I mean, in my hand. I still got this bread in my hand. And so her job, even as a child, was to keep playing regardless of the commotion. And that that's hard to do, I think, especially in a black especially church. Especially as a child. Yeah. Too. And it's like, you know, and then know when to start and stop. Because mm-hmm. that's the thing. People improv, and, you know, it's a lot of improvisational. Like mm-hmm. people start singing and they go into it and then they stop. And then she has to start back up again. But that's probably why she became so good at the music she ultimately became famous for. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of that is uh, improvisation. Improvisational. Thank you. Even I didn't probably say it right, but whatever. (laughs) So because she grew up in the Jim Crow South, Jim Crow laws where everything is separate but equal, which is not true, but she attended a college school. It's called Tryon College School, which encompassed elementary, secondary, and high school through only to the 11th grade, not even the 12th grade. Really? No. What did you do for the 12th grade? What would people do? They just go get a job. What's the? That's so weird. What? <laughs> anyway. No. Yeah, I know. There was no central heat or running water. What? Awful. I know. And this no is, running the, water. No running water. And they and it is this custom in the South during that time. The black schools received hand-me-down materials from the white schools. So, test the textbooks were often in tatters. So this is in the forties. 30s and 40s, 30s, because she she was born in 33. So there's no bathrooms in the school. 
No. Yeah. The back covers would, you know, be taken off and, you know, nothing. So the, even the biology and chemistry experiments that were difficult, um, if not impossible, because they had little equipment. Mm -hmm. So for all of the intellectual effort inside the walls of the school, you know, it, it made a mockery of that separate but equal to Jim Crow South mm -hmm. stuff. So the principal at that time, here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Here's the story. The principal at that time had been lobbying for a new building. He lobbied for it for a lot of time and nothing happened. You know, the white councilmen, I guess, were like, no, no, you can't have it. Blah, blah, blah. No. So his patience gave out. And, and by the way, Eunice, Nina, Eunice was seven years old at the time. You know, his patience gave out, as I said. And sometime during the first week of June in 1940, Principal Wells, <laughs> I'm already messing up, Principal Wells contacted a local guy and gave him $25 to burn down the school. I know we're talking about mm. fire again. So the guy was like, yeah, okay, I can do that. And he recruited two other people. And one of the names, one of the people's names was Cleveland. So you know it's going to be trouble right there if your name's Cleveland. But, Why? So, it's a cool name. It's a cool name. Sorry, I had to. I'm getting a little freaked out by all this fire talk. I just <laughs> you put the candle out. Oh, it's tempting fate. Like, what okay. if something all jumps right. over? You're right, and jumps out and lands on your. And then we're talking shirt. about too many things. And but neat, but Eunice is protecting us. Um, we have her picture up. Should I now? Now I'm thinking I should light it again. No, you got that. You got that sea salt can. Oh God! You just got the sea salt thing. My going. neurosis is is bleeding out to the show now. Okay. <laughs> so he hired Cleveland and Hattie, and told them they could make a little easy money on a small job. And on June 9th, 1940, the three of them went to the school, pried open a door, doused the floors with kerosene, uh, lit the match, and the place went up in flames. And uh, it really burnt the whole thing up, which wow. had to be kind of built up during the school year. I kind of feel bad that he felt that uh, it must have been bad conditions mm -hmm. for him to feel that dire to do that. Mm -hmm. But um, a few days later, 10 days after the fire, they were arrested. Oh, um, really? Actually, five days later, they arrested them. So they, they knew it was them. Somehow, somebody must have talked. And they were convicted on arson charges. Um, in August and sent us to prison. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he appealed his convention and conviction and won a new trial, but he was convicted again. Um, he served a prison sentence that began in 1942, two years after it burned down. And the new school did open in December 1942, oh, it so it worked. They got a new school. Well, good. And they, uh, you know. How they, long was he in jail for? That I do not know. They did have to go and have their school at the local church, I think. Mm. So to Eunice's good fortune around this time, her mom regularly cleaned a house for a white lady named Catherine Miller. Her mom's name was Kath, you know, Kathleen, mm. by the way, Kate. So Kate um, cleaned a house for a widow who lived in like an affluent neighborhood in Tryon. And, you know... Eunice often accompanied, accompanied mm -hmm. her mom, you know, to the Miller's house on Saturdays. 
And so one day, Mrs. Miller went to hear Eunice probably at, you know, the theater or something. Mm -hmm. And I read somewhere that even at the, because of the Jim Crow laws, that her own parents had to, they couldn't sit in the front. They had to sit in the back, by the what? way. What? Yes, by the way. And Weird they went into time. Exactly. But, you know, she did sing with her sisters, uh, little Eunice. She sang, it was called the Wayman Sisters. And so her sister Lucille was a soprano. Her sister Dorothy was a contralto. And uh, Eunice, if song called for it, would be would be the alto. Mm -hmm. Like she was a little kid, and so Mrs. Miller told her mom, "You know what? It would be sinful if Eunice didn't have proper study to nourish her, her piano talent." Mm -hmm. And so Kate said, "Look, we can't afford that. We just can't. You know, there's eight of you know eight kids." And so Mrs. Miller said, "She said, look, I'll make you an offer. I'll pay for a year's worth." of lessons if if she shows promise after that mm -hmm. year i will try and find a way to keep paying for lessons mm -hmm. yeah which is amazing yes and the person that she had in mind was right across the street from her oh, named miss mazzy she was a mm -hmm. german miss mazzy was from germany and on certain days most days Eunice would walk two miles to miss mazzy's house right across oh, the wow. street and to hear her uh, piano lesson, you know, to take piano lessons from Miss Mazzy. And she was so accomplished that they didn't have to do the, you know, the normal standard mm -hmm. beginner keys. They went right into Bach, mm -hmm. Johann Sebastian Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach, the German composer and musician, is regarded as one of the greatest composers of all time. Born in 1685 to a dynasty family of professional musicians, he was considered the greatest keyboard player of his day. He was known for intertwining as many as six musical threads and compositions together on the spot, to the amazement of his listeners. He was also a very passionate man who fathered 21 children. In his mid-60s, after two eye surgeries, his vision faded. Ten days before he died, miraculously his vision returned and allowed him to look at his large family one last time, before a debilitating stroke shrouded him in darkness again. He died a few days later at the age of 65. Um, and she would come to her house, um, and she loved it. And she, she went every it. day. I think she went every day. Wow. And she loved it. Maybe and, my students can listen to this. But that became her favorite composers because Miss Mazzy, like you, a music teacher like yourself, um, and by the way, the lessons flew by, the year flew by, mm -hmm. and sure enough, she kept her word, Miss Miller, Mrs. Miller, and recruited another lady, a rich lady named Esther Moore, and they paid for more lessons from Miss Mazzy. And Miss Mazzy taught her how to walk gracefully to a piano. Mm -hmm. So she taught her classical piano. She learned all of the classical, you know, uh, composers. Mm -hmm. And um, this was important because she wanted, Eunice wanted to be, they all wanted her to be, and she wanted to be, a classical concert pianist. That yeah, was that's her what, dream. That was her main dream. Yeah, that was that's how it was she like came into Patsy it. getting to um, the opera. Yes, yes. It's like that one. Yes. Focus. And she really took time with her. Like she talked about the composers, talked about what made them special, mm -hmm. like Bach and all these other ones, Beethoven. The wonderful thing is that, you know, Eunice played for her friends at school. You know, they gathered in the auditorium to do a free period, and she would just play for anything, for anyone. I did but, hear, though, that yeah. she felt, because she was practicing so much and because her life was, as a player, she kind of missed out on the rest of the being a child as well. 
sound like Michael Jackson. Huh? I mean, it's a, it's really true. It makes for, sense. It, but it's true for all the elite athletes. Pra- yeah. Like anyone that achieves a high level of success early on, there's usually, there's tons of training that goes involved with it. Oh, completely. Especially classical music. I mean, that's that's serious stuff. Well, you know, I read somewhere that Eric Clapton said that somebody said, what should you do if you're learning guitar? And he said, definitely learn the classical guitar. Mm-hmm. And so sometime in 1944, after she had turned 11, she gave a recital. She gave lots of recitals Mm -hmm. and um, probably in the main room. And I'm sure her parents had to sit in the back. But anyway, so when Eunice's teacher, when she was about, when one of her teachers at the Tryon school recommended that she be allowed to skip ninth grade because she was an exceptional student, Mm -hmm. uh, Miss Mazzy suggested that she should leave and go be in a private school. So she got to continue her studies at, a, at the Allen School, which is a private school about an hour away from home. And uh, it was a strict school, but she blossomed there. Mm-hmm. She got up. She still, like what you were talking about, how it's ingrained in you about, you know, as a kid practicing and practicing. Mm-hmm. She got up at 530 each morning to practice the piano in the school's auditorium before breakfast at 7. Wow. And her classmates grew to waking up to the sound of Bach mm-hmm. or perhaps scales in every key wafting up through the hallways. They got used to that. And she, you know, she made some friends, but they none of them really felt close to her because she was so focused on her music. Mm-hmm. And when the Allen staff, the Allen School staff, realized that Eunice was already beyond what the school's music staff mm-hmm. could teach her, she was allowed to take private lessons off of campus with a, tu- a private tutor that Miss Mazzy so was she she was she still with Miss Mazzy or not yes Miss Mazzy was still a part of her life mm. she called her her white mama she and she said her. she was really kind to her so very to, much so and she, she said at that her. point she wasn't used to yeah yeah because I remember in the documentary it said even the what happened Miss Simone they said that she had to deal with like fear of walking those train tracks because those train mm-hmm. tracks separated the black and the white community, the, the affluent communities. And you can kind of be scared of what, what somebody, um, what, ha- you know, somebody mm-hmm. grabbing you or something, yeah. but you know, anyway, so she, while she was there, she did join the local, uh, NAACP and she became by her junior year, she was a treasurer. So she graduated at 17 and Miss Mazzy secured a scholarship for her to study at Ju- the Juilliard School mm-hmm. of Music in New York City um, for the summer session of 1950. And the idea was to use this study as a preparation for the scholarship exam to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Juilliard summer session ended in August 11th. She stayed in New York to study on a private basis because her, her goal was to try and get into the Cur- Curtis Institute. That's what she lived mm-hmm. by. Um, and um, Gabby's going to definitely tell you about the Curtis Institute, but it was a, it's a very prestigious school that's still around. Um, they only allow a certain amount of people mm-hmm. in every year. I mean, Juilliard's uh, not it's too prestigious shabby too. No. Oh, my God, no. Of course not. 
The Curtis Institute was established in 1924 by Marie Louise Curtis Bach, who named it after her father, Cyrus Curtis. The Curtis Institute of Music is a conservatory in Philadelphia that offers courses of study leading to a performance diploma, Bachelor of Music, Master of Music in Opera, or Professional Studies Certificate in Opera. Students are selected on the basis of merit alone. Tuition is free and students can attend anywhere from 2 to 10 years. All keyboard and composition students are lent Steinway Grand Pianos throughout their studies. It is renowned for being amongst the most selective institutes of higher education in the world, with a 4.8% admissions rate. Annual enrollment is only in the range of 150 to 170 per year. But, you know, one thing about what made it so special for her, because I think they only allow, like, one applicant a year. Like, it's really tough. And um, you have to play from memory, like Bach, or I think she had to play from memory Bach and, like, a complete Beethoven sonata, Mm -hmm. which was in her wheelhouse, which she loved. And Chopin, Chopin, Mm -hmm. how do you say Mm -hmm. it? Chopin. Chopin. Perfect. She had to play that, and she's one of my favorites. Yeah, he's beautiful too. I love Beethoven is one of my favorites because he's such a rock star, and he 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 had such a life. We have to care. We actually are going to do Beethoven. We have to do Beethoven. I I mean, because that Joker was wild. He was absolutely and crazy, but in fun, insane, but fun. Um, She auditioned in the spring of 1951, Mm -hmm. um, and knowing her, she was probably marvelous. Um, They rejected her. And she thought her dream of being a classical pianist lay in ruins. She was very devastated. And because she still dreamed of breaking like the color barrier in classical music, mm-hmm. pianist. Um, so she decided, you know, I'm going to work twice as hard. I'm going to do that. I'm going to audition again the next year. But the plan made sense until her brother Carol repeated what he had learned from, from her uncle Walter, which is that who is well-connected, supposedly, in the black and white circles, and that she had been rejected from Curtis because she was black. And that sat with her, I think. Um, So kind of convinced she had no music, no future in music, Mm -hmm. she quit. She quit playing piano. And she took a job in a photographer's darkroom. And her brother Carol saw how miserable she was without playing the piano, and like told her, he told her, he was like, you know what, sis, you got to get back to mm-hmm. classical piano studies, you know, and, you know, we'll yeah, find to go a way from to help that, you. To go from that rigid, I mean, it's her whole life. She'd have right. no memory. Right. There'd be no pre-piano playing memory. Right. Wow. Then, that's true. Well, that's true. Think about it. Can you remember when you were two? I can't. No. That's all she would know. And then right. you just take that away. You know, what's yeah. weird is that my dad used to say to me all the time mm-hmm. when I was being melodramatic, which is good because that never happens anymore, which <laughs> <laughs> is, we all know it's a lie, uh, but he would always <laughs> ask me if I had sang, because singing was my thing, you know, it's, we all have different things, but mm-hmm. anytime I thought that if I stopped doing music, maybe that's how, because it would, I was like, oh, this is the answer, and then I'll be all upset, and then I sing, and I feel better, so... Yeah. He always he would just be like, "Have you sang today?" I'm like, well, Dad, and then he hangs up on me, and then I'll sing, and then I feel better. <laughs> that's beautiful, actually, because that's that's when you're your true self. And I think for her, you know, mm-hmm. playing piano was her, her true, true self. self. It would make sense that, especially, you know, if a dream mm. was shut down and it had nothing to do with your ability, that's mm. pretty that's terrible. Devastating. Yeah, yeah, it's awful. Well, she she did find a piano instructor at Curtis for students to help her 
you know, he majored, you know, he agreed to take her on as a private student um, to prepare her for an audition for the following year. And so she gave up the photography job and she um, started taking private lessons. And in order to earn money, she took a job as an accompanist. Is that right? A company mm-hmm. for a vocal studio. And coincidentally, the studio was barely two blocks from Curtis because by this time, her mom is it's weird. While she was in New York and all that was happening in New York at the Juilliard School, her mom then had decided to move to Philadelphia. I'm not oh. too sure why. So the whole family picked up and they were in Philadelphia. So she's taking these lessons right by the Curtis School. Wow. Yeah, and she's got this job right by the Curtis School school um and the job provided one benefit which i know you'll love is the chance to learn new music and mostly the current hits that the students liked Mm -hmm. along with older standards that their parents favored and she could do sheet music she could do anything after hearing a song only once and she enjoyed the challenge of trying to make even bad singers sound good she said oh wow yeah she was a music teacher she became a music teacher because the woman that owned the vocal studio was hardly there. Mm-hmm. So she left it to her to be teaching these kids and she had no vo- formal vocal training. She loosened up the kids and taught them singing. And she taught them that singing meant more than learning the melody and the lyrics. So may- mm-hmm. maybe gaining their voice. She oh yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's, that's how I teach. I'm yeah, totally like you. Well, it, it's more than it is a lot more than that though, because you could hit every note, you could do everything perfectly, but unless you're feeling it, it's, it's it doesn't pointless. mean anything, doesn't right? Mean anything. I guess that's like it's with just anything. a bunch of notes, but it's the same also, even with playing, it has to be like, you can be like, when I was in music school, there was certain people that would stand out. There would be some people, some people that could play a piece perfectly. It would just be excellent but then you'll completely forget that performance and there was the someone else. in it. Even if there was a couple things that might be off, but you felt the heart in it. I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked about that yeah. before with music, but... That's true. It applies to, I think, all aspects of music. Yeah, yeah, I, that's true. I think true. she was more than just a classical player. She yeah. also, her, I think her passion of, as we'll see, as her life goes on. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, it was it beautiful kind of... because she opened her own studio with a piano. Mm. She decided, you know, I could do this. I can open in my own studio. She had a little few pieces of furniture, a phonograph, and some cherished records, and a new dog she named Sheba. Mm. And she charged two fifty an hour, cheaper than the previous than her boss. Mm. And eight students. What year was this? She was young because she must have been about 18. So in the 50s, it was like 1950, I'm going to say two because she had to be like, I'd say she had to be about 18, 19. She was young. And so because she she went and performed at her first bar in 1954. So it was right before this. So I would say around. So she was, um, yeah. So she was about 21 when she went and performed at that first bar. So she it was right around the 53, 52, you know, around that time. Um, and, um, you know, before long, she, you know, had a lot of students that mm. a lot of her students came. And her former employer was initially irked, but then she didn't hold a grudge. And before long, she was given her part-time work again. You know, oh, really? So she had her own you know, um, studio and she had part-time work from her. Can you imagine getting lessons from Nina Simone? That'd be pretty awesome. A story to tell. You know what I'm doing. I'm always doing this. What's that? I just want to know how much it would be today. 
I know. It's like my favorite thing. Two fifty an hour. I saved nineteen. Okay, well, yeah, that's still cheap. Twenty five dollars. Wow. Twenty five dollars from Nina Simone. From Nina Simone. From who would be come Nina Simone? Wow. Well, if any of those kids are still alive, they have a story to tell. They're like, I remember when I, I was invite a kid. them to come on. <laughs> tell us about it. Um. Oh, people could totally still be alive. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they totally could. Because they would be they... younger than her. Yeah. Maybe in their seventies or eighties. So, so if you're listening, yeah, come on the show. Tell us about your singing lesson. Tell us about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> through a few of her college-age students, um, which was her age, uh-huh. she heard about night spots in Atlantic City that, you know, like one of her, one of the students uh, played piano at a hotel for a lot more than what Nina was making teaching mm-hmm. music. And knowing that she played way better than him, she was like, I got to get me an agent. So she got an agent through the, through the student. Oh, awesome. Who booked a bar, and that agent booked a bar. And that bar in June 1954, she performed for an out-of-town bar. She lived in Philadelphia. She drove there. She didn't want anybody to know. Mm. And she drove there for an out-of-town bar called Midtown in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And um, the owner, you know, asked her, how do you want to be billed? Like, what, what is your, mm. how do you want to be named? And so she stopped because in the excitement over the new job, she had forgotten about what her family, especially her mom, uh, would think about her playing in a bar. Oh, yeah. So, you know, her mother wouldn't approve. She knew it. And in addition, she didn't realize that she could lose students if their parents knew she was slumming, Mm. so to speak, in Atlantic City. It's slumming to play in a bar? Yeah, back then for her. And she wanted to be a classical pianist. That's true. So she realized. And now it's so different. It's like, hey, any gig's a gig. I know, right? No people love it. it. It's people like, love oh, it. I did a diaper commercial. Exactly. I didn't, but I would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a bread commercial. Look, bread, we're definitely a, doing a bread Ryan. commercial. They got a piece. So we're sponsored um, by Gabby now. So. Yeah, I know. Gabby. Bread by Gabby. Bread by um, Gabby. Thank you, Gabby. Yes, thanks, Gabby. <laughs> and um, so she changed her name on the spot. Mm. Wow. She changed it to that was Nina a name Simone. she just came up with? Boom. Well, in 1960, a few years later, she told a newspaper that she chose Nina because she'd always been called Nina, meaning little one as a child. But her older siblings were like, what the hell is she talking about? I don't know. Nobody. They had no recollection of that. Um, in in a, her published memoir in 1991, she said that Simone came from appreciation of the French film star Simone Signore. Oh, okay. Um, but she still just came up with yes, that? Yes, she did. Right there. Right there. Oh, my God. If I've ever been asked to give a fake name, I'll be like, uh, Carpet know. Wall. I know, right? Like, I can't even think of any real name, to, let alone a gorgeous name. Nina Simone. Yeah, that's, that's his destiny, though. It like, was destiny. And for her first performance, she wrote, because she's a classical pianist <laughs> sorry i can't take you seriously as you're talking pianist. with an entire loaf of bread in the side of your mouth <laughs> classical pianist <laughs> you know what that's you know what i hate to be so awful but every time i say pianist i think of pianist. i knew you were gonna say it you know i i'm not joking i seriously i was watching the documentary i'm like you know we're not gonna <laughs> We're not going to laugh this whole show. This is a very serious. This is a serious <laughs> artist. This is a serious accent. show. I know. It's, it's my not a serious show. coming out. I'm sorry. Pianist. No? I always thought I it was funny, it. too. You said what? Pianist? Pianist. You just can't say pianist. You can say pianist. You can say whatever. Pianist? 
That's my country accent. It's I think I say I, I say pianist. Pianist? How you say it? Pianist. <laughs> I bet it's not gonna make it not funny, but I still think <laughs> I say it that way. <sighs> well, it's not a bad thing to say, but whatever. <laughs> um <laughs> so for her first performance. <laughs> She wore a chiffon gown, mm-hmm. makeup, hair, did all up. And they were like looking at her like, what the hell is this? Cause she's like 4 a.m. in the morning and stuff. Because she had, I think she played for barely an hour or two for oh, her wow. first time. And so, you know, when her set was over, over I think at 4 a.m. So I think she played like for two hours. I think he gave her a shot. Mm. And so she asked him like, his name was, Stu- his last name was Stuart. So she's like, you know, what do you think? What did you think about? You know, what's your opinion? And he's like, yeah, your piano playing is nice and mm-hmm. interesting. It was great because it was classical piano. Mm-hmm. He said, but why aren't you singing? And mm-hmm. she says, I'm a pianist. I mean, a pianist. And he said, not according to me, you're not. He said, tomorrow night, you're either a singer or you're out of the job. Wow. And How awesome of a destined opportunity, I though. Because she's... I mean, as great as a piano player, piano player, pianist, is that she is. (laughs) See, I wasn't even, now you got me in my head. But uh, it's just what made her stand out was that voice, you know. And I mean, it also was a compliment. He hadn't even heard her voice. That's that's what I mean. Like, it's a destined mm -hmm, opportunity. That's true. It really is. It's like one of those magical things. Same with Mm. Patsy, how, like, her biggest hits were songs she hated or she didn't want to do. I know. She's like, I don't want to be pop. And it's like, and she's a country icon. Like, it's just weird how these moments present themselves. Completely. That she may have never had even done and had had she ended up getting that degree. Or, I mean, going to Curtis. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just... I know. When you get more into the like grander picture of things, right. how it's like everything. I wish played she had looked at her. it like that too. I wish she hadn't. It's hard to see for any of us. To, when yeah. you're in anything in your life, it's really hard to see it. I mean, also, but it's she good had a though when of... the when the opportunity presents itself. What is it? I think Edison or somebody said opportunity is preparation meets luck. Luck, is it? Preparation meets luck. Something like that. But Gabby, find it. <laughs> yeah, Gabby, you're good about that. Preparation meets something is... Opportunity. Op- yeah. Preparation hmm. meets opportunity is what? Success. Success? Hmm. Okay. Yeah, there we go. I wish, though, and I think I've been able to see it more in my life, mm-hmm. especially recently, is that is to let things go... Like even mm-hmm. when something seems so disappointing, absolutely, and to see the beauty of it, because something once you let it go, there's a hole there for something more successful absolutely. to come in. So I, what I was saying is, I wish Nina had been able to kind of not, mm-hmm. as we'll see, there's going to be a hold that's going to take a hold mm-hmm. on her yeah. that we're going to see more of. But anyway. For the next year, Nina lived a double life musically. Mm-hmm. You know, one part was her day job, which is the storefront business. Uh, another part was practicing every minute on her own time for the Curtis Institute. And then polishing the various pieces once a week with her teacher. And then lastly, performing at the Midtown uh, Bar, which she admitted later on loosened her up. Mm-hmm. It loosened her up. It got her going. And... Pretty soon, word began to spread about Nina in that little mm-hmm. bar. Well, it's because she was unique, though. Like, she completely. It's just, 
her voice is what like if you walked by a bar yeah say you're at night walking yeah. by a bar you hear some great piano playing you'd be like oh cool keep walking mm-hmm. you hear that voice you walk in with it's a classical just, piano meet jazz like cause she I didn't know. play the class she I know. went into jazz they would like, say sometimes she'd play two different songs together yes that i mean that's way down the road but still. she was that brilliant but like she probably, could, she probably could do it down she could do it at this time because oh, yeah, she loved sure Bach. That's what he was known for, as everybody will hear from Gabby's, if they have already heard from Gabby's, um, from her bumpers, is that Bach could play six different, weave, intertwine mm-hmm. six different threads in, mm-hmm. which made him incredible. It was amazing to his listeners to mm-hmm. hear, but she was that brilliant. She was, she was brilliant, even at that time. I mean, she could weave stuff in even thread stuff like classical jazz and blues in together. Like even if you listen to Love Me or Leave Me, it's all mixture with mm-hmm. classical, which well, makes so she was not like anyone yeah, at all. She was an and alien. Totally. She was an alien. alien. Um so Stewart said, you know what, this is good for damn business. I'm gonna increase this increase your time from nine PM to four AM with a, a break every I think a half hour, I think. 9 p.m. to 4 a.m.? Yeah, she was good for business. Wow, that's now, a long set. Exactly. After midnight, new people started coming in, those younger whites that were regulars, and they would be drinking. So, you know, Nina's fame made her realize, I'm, oh, this is going to get good. <laughs> um, I want to say this, though. Before... I don't know if I put this in here, but even then, because she was such a serious classical, she thought of herself as a serious mm-hmm. pianist, um, she would give you the stink eye. So say you're running your mouth while she's talking, she would just look at you dead on, like shut the hell she up. She always did that, though. It's she started scary. at this bar, and he was like, I ain't going to mess with her. She was good for business, and Stuart was like, Ooh. I'm just not going to say nothing. Ooh. Cause and I'm gonna increase her hours because, but she would look at like white folks like, will you shut the hell up? Like she'd look at you and keep playing and stare down you, like I'm looking at you now. I That's stare scary. you down, and <laughs> That's scary. That was my cutie pie eyes. No, you looked cute. I said she was scary. No, you're I'm just messing cute. with you. I was looking at you mean like she would. She'd yeah, be playing very mean. and then she'd like. Melissa's she'd, mean she'd face playing. is not that scary. I'm, it's I'm like... like miming the piano and stuff. But Nina was no joke. She'd look at you with that chiffon gown on and want to kick your ass. And so and so he was like, I ain't saying nothing because it She goes works. under the uncompromising that you talk about. Oh, like, totally cause... uncompromised. She's no joke. And so... um. She decided, you know, I got to tell my mother. Dang, I got to tell her. After a year, I got to tell her. Mm-hmm. So she told her mom, um, you know, mom, I'm playing in night spots to, you know, supplement my lessons. And um, and she's saying she was doing it to play for the classical lessons. In fact, she explained that she mixed in classical music, you know, whenever she could and gave everything, her jazz or blues, a classical twist you know, and even just, usually it was played with a pop arrangement. And Kate was like unmoved and wanted nothing to do. She didn't want to hear it anymore. Wow. She wanted, didn't want to hear about the career. And it hurt Nina's feelings. It yeah. really did. Um, but she wasn't surprised. But you know what? Her mom wasn't too disappointed to take that money that Nina gave her every week. She gave, you know she, what? Then she, you should, she, if you're going to have that opinion, then you should not be able to take the money. Exactly. If you're going to take she, the money, be supportive. She took care of her family. 
How she hard is it to be money. supportive? I'll tell you a very supportive story of yeah. Miss Willie Carter who introduced I love her. Melissa and I. Hi, Miss um, Willie. My mom is like the cutest person in the world. <laughs> so I decided they had spent a fortune on lessons and everything. And I was auditioning for this really fancy school right before it. I would drive three hours to these lessons every wow. week. And um, uh, anyway, I had already been to music school, but it was this other conservatory. It was like my whole opera career. But anyway, mm-hmm. decided then. <laughs> I was leaving to join a band and I was freaking out about this. I'm like, oh my God, they've invested so much money all this time. And now I'm going to be this big disappointment. (laughs) I remember telling my parents and I tell my mom, I'm like, I was like, well, you know, I want to be in a band. And my mom's like, I knew this opera thing was just a phase. You need to write your own stuff. (laughs) And I was just like, you are an alien. My That's mom is just, brilliant. Both my parents were just so supportive. There are not too many parents who would say that, especially if they were paying for it. They'd be like, you need to go back into those lessons and da-da-da. You know what I mean? No, they, they're the way they saw it. They're like, well, your lessons got you to to this. and That's Which awesome. is funny because I use tons of classical stuff now. But See, it, but you know weird. what? It's great, but it's great for them to not make you feel bad about it. No, she, and I was crying when I told them because I was freaking out and you they were super so supportive. So. Oh, so there's a Those little Canadians they got it going on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so you know, Nina's growing reputation led her to an agent named Jerry Field. Actually, Stewart, the owner of the bar, had told her about Jerry Field, and he started booking her into more upscale summer uh, supper clubs, summer clubs, supper clubs. Yeah, what's a summer club? I know. And and even at those clubs, she had a reputation of staring real hard at anyone who talked. <laughs> I was her watching some of her shows. Like I watched a bunch of performances, yeah. and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it's like being in the front row of like a comedian. I would like want to sit at the very back <laughs> of Nina's show. You see that girl that stood up and she's like, sit down, sit down, sit, sit down. down. And that was in her career at the Montreux <laughs> Jazz Festival in like 1980s. Yeah, she said, sit down, but she didn't girl. stop. And she said, girl. Girl, sit down. Sit down. And you're like, that is terrifying. I would be like, <laughs> I know. She, I wonder what she was like as a teacher. Like, I wonder if she was. They said, actually, you know what? I read she was very good as a teacher. She was. Oh, I'm sure she was good. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering how she. She was patient. She wasn't. Um, oh. She wasn't like, yeah, I've done it. She was very good with them. Wow. They liked her a lot. Eight students followed her. Mm-hmm. Or where she went um she just didn't like she felt like because when you play in classical piano mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's quiet it's very you know people are paying attention mm-hmm. to the music yeah yeah and so she had that in mind like well, I said, it's very Mazzy. very hard going from doing recitals because recitals like i always sang at churches and recitals and stuff mm-hmm. and i'm you know i'm always interjecting my own experience but it's because i do understand this mm-hmm. and then going to playing in a bar where people are drunk and they're not paying attention yeah and it's really hard right. at first where you just hear everyone talking and but a recital everyone can't hear one thing <laughs> yeah i know exactly you gotta listen you know yeah. you're listening they're listening um and she became bolder at dealing with offending parties that's all i can tell you and late fall of 1957 um i don't know the precise date that nobody knows the precise date of nina's session it's not really known but that's when she signed a recording deal with bethlehem and she recorded oh. an album and though she had picked the music and recorded with the musicians she wanted she took little pressure 
pleasure from the session. You know, most people like, you know, Sam Cooke and everybody be like, hey, I made it into a recording studio. Yay. Mm-hmm. Not her. <laughs> she still <laughs> considered herself. <laughs> not her. <laughs> not her. That's not her. She still considered this whole thing mm-hmm. a musical detour. Yeah. Dictated by financial necessity. Mm-hmm. And she went back to Philadelphia and she later wrote and immersed herself in Beethoven for three days straight. Because mm-hmm. she was like, this is dirty, I guess. You're like, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, um, Miss Patsy Cline last yeah. show. You know, I'm I'm not a pop singer. I'm country, and so she felt like I'm I'm classical. I'm a classical pianist. And at the end of 1958, at the suggestion of her agent, she moved to New York with her boyfriend Don Ross. Um, he's a white dude, honestly. Funny enough, right? Um, to advance her career, when you think about her career, yeah, that's why it's funny. It's, it's funny. It is funny. Um, to advance her career, and even though it wouldn't do anything to further her classical ambitions, mm. you know, she had mixed feelings about returning to Manhattan because when she was there for the Juilliard classes, she was lonely a bit. Mm. Her sister Lucille lived there at the time when she was in New York, um, but um, she just, she just had you know, reservations because she felt like it was a little bit of a lonely period for her when mm-hmm. she was there for Juilliard, um, which is why she relented and married Don in a brief civil ceremony at the courthouse in Philadelphia before she left. No family was present. Um, and the only witness was a county employee that was walking by. Well, um, that's not always bad. I mean, Ben and I eloped, so. But we had yeah, a party later. but then you got married later. She wasn't interested in getting married later mm-hmm. like you and Ben. She's like, I'm yeah, saying, let's do it because I don't, don't want to be lonely. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I don't want to be lonely. The marriage wasn't good because she didn't love him. Oh, yeah. Um, and she complained that all he wanted to do is drink and smoke. And she felt more like the hired help than a wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and she resented it, especially since she was the one working and making the money, you know. And he spent her money because he had none of his own. Um and the early breakdown in their marriage caused her to kind of start drinking more because it was stressful mm. for her. Um, she never did until that point, oddly enough. When she was at the, um, I think she drank like milk. When she was at the Midtown Bar, mm-hmm. it was something like orange juice or milk. She never drank oh. alcohol. Sorry, just orange juice and milk freaked me out. I'm not together. No, not oh, together. Nice. It's either or. I just can't remember whether it was milk or orange juice. Which is but weird I can't remember. orange juice and milk would be disgusting, but... Creamsicles are a thing, and they're good. That's true. It's delicious. I know. So, um, but anyway. I don't know what she drank. It wasn't. It was non-alcohol. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember. My little brain can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember. But she did not drink alcohol until she moved to Manhattan, and really, the the stress of it all. Oh, it's normally LA so. ruins everybody. So this time New York. It's New York did it. Yay! One of the big cities always ruin you. Well, she started with a glass of champagne. After the show, and when she wasn't looking, one of her fans would refill her drink and uh. buy her more drinks. And before long, she knew she was drunk. Mm. So she ended up divorcing Don within the year, like by the next year. And so Bethlehem Records finally released her album uh, the first week of February 1959. It was the first time it released her album, A oh, Little wow. Girl Blue, I think it was. And Bethlehem, oddly enough, sadly enough, decided not to renew her contract. Mm. So Cole Picks Records signed her immediately and she hired a lawyer named max cohen um and i love you porgy was still on the charts when she signed with cold picks and that came from little blow little girl blue um and it stayed on the charts for 15 weeks but 
She insisted in her memoir that she hardly noticed. She wasn't interested in a pop yeah, career. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't her thing. Yeah, like, she said she was. But that for makes the sense though. Stage. If you if you have this view of what your life's going to be, I mean, it will can also cause great unhappiness. That's what you just said about Anguish. letting go. Anguish. If you you got to let go, and you do. I think sometimes you have to open up that there could be something better for you, just like what you said. I, yeah. But if you always have that, everything is second best to. Yeah that then you really couldn't you know that makes me think about like michael jackson which is sad this story about michael because you know thriller was so like astronomically Mm -hmm. successful that every album he did after that he wanted to live up to thriller Mm -hmm. and you can't you just gotta enjoy it you know what i mean but i think it's like anything in life though if you're constantly chasing like even if you're constantly chasing youth like you you're never going to be 20 again so you got to be 20 when you're 20 right and appreciate when you're 60 and see that as a gift like very few people on our show have been able to reach that milestone right Right. i mean she's actually defying that law of the youngins on the show right right but just like to if i think what you said about letting go i mean she clearly wasn't able to but she wasn't and it drove her but it also, it's I think, it drove into her, her angu- anguish, anguish, and, and her insane. anger, and it fueled yeah. a lot of it. So, yeah, I mean, all of the nightclub work, even the new deal with cold picks, was only to make money so she could resume her studies. Mm-hmm. You know, she hadn't given any specific thought to her audience either. She, you know, they found her; she didn't seek them. Isn't but maybe that that's the that's kind of amazing, though. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like you know the people that aren't like needy. Needy never gets anything. That energy, but yeah. But to be like, ah, I don't need you. Then people, I need you. I know they want her more. It's a I mean, universal energy. Then. Isn't it true about everything in that way? If you it's think everything. about it, if you think about it, I mean, you know, and she's always she always started out as like, um, not I don't know if it's mercurial at this point, but she would she has standards. Mm-hmm. She has standards because like it's one time she walked into a nightclub and she sought out the manager and she's like, you need to wipe down this piano. And she said in a tone that suggested only one right answer. And she said, I'm not going to touch that instrument until it's wiped down. I mean, she was full scary. Like, she yeah. really was. Yeah. She was. She sure was. Them little standards kept her going. I think there's a lot of it that's great, but I right. would not want to mess around. Like, So, you know, she performed Love Me or Leave Me on, uh, gosh, September 11th, 1960. Oh, On wow. the Ed Sullivan show. That Ed Sullivan he like every single one of our artists that was like pre, I don't know, nineties was on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But he when was, did his shows end? If I remember from the Sam Cooke bumper, I think it ended in the sixties or early seventies because the Doors were on there. Yeah, because remember, it's just a lot they, of the artists we've talked to have been on Ed Sullivan. But he was on the air for a long time. And he was super duper successful because, yes, remember the doors were on there and they were like, come on, don't say something. (laughs) And Jim Morrison said, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all like, yeah, yeah, we're not going to say it. And then they said it. Yeah, right. Made them amazing. Um, But she became more insistent about proper decorum when she performed in nightclubs. Hmm. She refused to drop the sensibility of a concert pianist. Um, one time she was so unhappy that some of the men in the bar were talking loud enough to be heard over the music that she stopped and said, I'm the one getting paid here. 
And if you guys sit over there talking, I might as well quit. Mm-hmm. She didn't amazing. give a shit what oh, anyone I else thought. That. And she chewed out the audience and walked off the stage many times in her career. You know, because Nina always said, and and I tried to... I find to, that impressive. I mean, isn't some it? people, I don't know. I think it's kind of great. She's like, like, I'm a you. concert. Yeah. I would love to have done that. It's oh incredible. My God, Fuck all of you. I'm out of here. I mean, because she's like, I'm a, I'm just slumming here. This, I'm a yeah. concert pianist, you know, but you know, Lena, I, I wanted to always put some of her thoughts into this whole process. And Nina once said, if you can get an audience to like you, that's fine. She said later, mm-hmm. if you can't, then you must get them to respect you. Ah. You cannot let them humiliate you. And this is great because she was always in demand. Mm -hmm. Her performances were revered or even early in her career. And so, you know, by the time, you know, it's funny because she got to perform at the Carnegie Hall on 1961 and she was dating. She divorced Don Mm -hmm. and she was dating a new cat named Andy Stroud. And he was a 14 year New York City cop. um, Oh, yeah. Covered Harlem. Yeah, and it was a he was great a tough courtship. dude too. He was, but he, you know, it was a great little courtship, according to her. She said that he bought her flowers and little gifts, and pretty soon she and Andy were engaged. Um, there was an incident where she got sick, and he was right there with her, and he had told her, you know, we're gonna get married if you come mm-hmm. through this. And according to Nina, when they went out to celebrate their engagement, this is kind of sad, but Andy drank much more than usual, and according to Nina. He became jealous after a fan handed her a note and didn't believe her explanation that it meant nothing. Oh. And he hit her in the face. On their engagement get- party? Yeah. As they were getting into a cab well, that's a um, to go back to, to the Central Park apartment. And when they got home, she claims he beat her in a rage. Wow. And, she and still that he pulled a gun. It. Yeah. He pulled a gun and he demanded that she read parts of letters from her high school sweetheart that she had saved and he pushed her into the bedroom she wrote tied her up and forced himself on her she called a freelance producer who was a friend for help he and his wife nursed her back nursed her back to help health i call it help i've been drinking too much health over the next two weeks <laughs> feeding so this her. was this was all the night of the engagement Yes, but, you know, you're going to probably talk about this because you saw this last night, that when they got married and we're still dealing with the engagement, that mm-hmm. she kind of liked, she had a little freaky side to her. They talked about that in Miss Miss Simone. No, they did. It just, it's very odd. To that she liked brain. to be tied up and fun stuff, sexual obsession a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, But when they were married, but. Anyway, but he has a side too. I'm gonna get to that. Um, and the guy, one of the when she told the story to, um, you know, her friend, they said, you know, don't marry him. And you know, later on, she said Andy noticed her bruises and he asked her who beat you up, and she said you did. And she said he denied it and absolutely. And she said he just stared at me and just said you're insane. Now, according to Nina, she made Andy see two psychiatrists. Because she didn't believe that, because he didn't believe that the incident had happened. And that one psychiatrist had told her she shouldn't marry him. And the other said she he'd probably been temporarily insane. This was in her mm. memoirs. Um, 
And when Andy, but she liked him being around. She weighed the pros and cons. When Andy was around, she said she didn't feel lonely. And perhaps more important, she could envision a life with him. Um, now, decades later, Andy's told a whole different story about their courtship. Oh, really? Yeah. That had nothing to do with any beatings. I mean, he remembered seeing one psychiatrist, but not for the reason that Nina asserted. She had been seeing someone to help her with her mood swings, uh, he said. Uh, but he was disturbed about something else. It's because, you know, she had affairs with women. That's oh. what he said. Oh. He said that even they said years later, her brother Sam confirmed it. Hmm. Um, and he was like, um, you know, but she would never acknowledge it. You know, and he said, you, it's either this or this. You either going to be with me or this. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, she, you know, talked, you know, she, of course, she's with him, of course. And they exchanged vows in uh, December 4th, 1961 at their Central Park West apartment and um, what's most important about this time in the early 1960s is that she formed a great relationship with Langston Hughes um, who Harlem Renaissance extraordinaire genius Langston Hughes who provided Nina an entree into like the New York black intellectuals like James Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry who um, you hear about from um Gabby, you know, when we talk about a raisin in the sun mm. fame with Sidney Poitier and the music, the movie. Nina's close friend Lorraine Hansberry was born on May 19, 1930, in Chicago, Illinois. She wrote A Raisin in the Sun, a play about a struggling black family which opened on Broadway in 1959 to great success, making Lorraine the first African American woman to produce a play on Broadway. At the age of 29, Lorraine was the first black playwright and the youngest American to win a New York Critics Circle Award. The film version of A Raisin in the Sun was released in 1961 and starred Sidney Poitier, who received an award at the Cannes Film Festival. Throughout her life, Lorraine was heavily involved in civil rights. She died in January 1965 at the age of 34 of pancreatic cancer. A few years after Lorraine's death, in homage to her friend, Nina would take the title of Lorraine's off-Broadway play to be young, gifted and black and co-write the song with the poet Weldon Irvine. Weldon would later say that after he read back the finished lyrics, he thought, I didn't write this. God wrote it through me. Uh, but she was also close to James Baldwin because she understood the anger that bristled in, in James Baldwin's characters when in his because he was a novelist. Mm. And when he described the humiliations that black people endured every time they ventured from the world that they were in, um, that was predominantly dominated by white people, Langston, you know, she really understood it. And she loved him for that. And Langston Hughes would send her books and really they supported her and she loved Lorraine. And so by this time, she became pregnant with her first child by Andy and they moved into a large three-story house in Mount Vernon, New York City, which we talked about where Mm -hmm. Malcolm X lived. Um, And she also returned to the studio. And this is the great part. I, I know we can't talk about every song, every yeah. album that Nina did, but there are a no. few songs that she did that are that I would urge our rocker babies to really go and take a listen to mm. um, because they mean something. And in the studio, 
first of all, her, her attitude in the studio, even back then, was described as being a very difficult person to get along with. They said one of the people who worked with her said it was like sitting next to a keg of dynamite. Oh, that seems kind of appropriate. I know for I her. Mean, she looks like, like you just, if she, yeah, she was her no intensity, joke. Like, yeah. She was serious because he said you never knew when she would blow or wouldn't blow. Mm -hmm. And she was known to be very professional, he said, though. Mm -hmm. She worked very quickly because she wasn't a time waster because she knew if she was late, it was costing her. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time the album was finished, the shot was cover shot was taken and Anna was um, Anna, Nina. <laughs> Nina was eight months pregnant, um, which is kind of amazing how they did albums back then. They recorded it and released it within a few months. Yeah, unlike, which is great. Unlike now, where it takes like a year or, you know. I think it depends. It's all over the place because some people, it comes out pretty quickly and some take a while. So mm -hmm. it just sort of depends. That's true, depending yeah. on the artist. Yeah. So Lisa Celeste Stroud was born on uh, September 1962. And her middle name, Celeste, was for a daughter that... Her dad had lost previously when she accidentally swaddled, swallowed poison as a toddler. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. I didn't know that. I, it was sad. I had to tell it. I'm like, oh. It's kind of yeah. like Sam, you know, when he lost so his sad. kid. But two months after Lisa was born, Nina returned to work. And a year into their marriage, Andy became Nina's personal manager. And to focus on his work, he rented uh, an office space in Mount Vernon, a few blocks from the house. And as his first order of a business, he put Nina in a concert of her own at Carnegie Hall uh, on October 12th, 1963. So she did her own concert at Carnegie Hall. And uh, she performed a song uh, that she wrote called Blackbird. And on the surface... It appeared to be a romantic song, mm -hmm. but Nina wrote the song to express her feelings about the current racial crisis. Um, and she knew that she needed Proudin to get more involved and her good friend Lorraine, a raising of the sun, mm -hmm. turned out to be the kind of catalyst, you know, because when they talked about politics and current events, Nina said she felt disconnected, but Lorraine persisted because she said, like it or not, you know, you're involved in a struggle just by the fact of being black. Mm -hmm. It made no difference whether, you know, Nita admitted to it, but she said, I had to admit it was true, mm -hmm. you know. And so Lorraine, you know, when she had her Con Carnegie Hall concert, it happened, and but it happened to be the date that Dr. King was arrested. So Lorraine didn't call her to congratulate her about the Carnegie Hall uh, concert date. She called her to say, look, what you doing about the movement while the mm -hmm. reverend sits in jail? What you going to do? And at the end of May 1963, Nina headlined like a massive NAACP benefit in New York City. And 10 days later, she listened while, while President John F. Kennedy Sr., uh, tele his televised address about civil rights and his boldest remarks yet on the subject because pretty much people swept it under the rug, but he mm -hmm. wasn't about that. Um, but sadly, Medgar Evers was assassinated. He was the NAACP's Mississippi field secretary. He was assassinated on the doorstep of his Jackson home. Mm -hmm. And he had just returned from the office of watching 
President Kennedy give that speech. Oh, wow. Um, She was pretty disgusted. And then that September, and by the way, I can't, I got to say that Patsy Cline was killed in 1963. Oh, yeah. That March. So uh, President Kennedy gave his um, speech that year Mm -hmm. before he died in November. And then in September is when uh, Nina was in her home office when she heard the news about the four little girls murdered in a church bombing. And also in all of that, there was a kid, a 13-year-old little kid named Virgil Ware, who was shot to death by two young white men who were cruising the city on a motor scooter decorated with the Confederate flag. And Nina said, all the truths that I had denied to myself for so long Mm -hmm. rose up and slapped my face. She said, you know, the church bombing and the slayer of Medgar Evers now fit like the last pieces of like a, a puzzle, you know, for her. And she said, I suddenly realized what it is to be black in America in 1963. And she sat down at the piano and the music erupted out of me faster than I could write it down. And within an hour of that, she wrote a song called Mississippi Got Down. Oh, yeah. And she performed it within a week. Wow. And they said, too, that, uh, I mean, there wasn't even, like, cursing or anything in songs like that. And that was considered pretty ballsy for that time. Controversial, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for many, many reasons. And the lyrics were so dead on, Mm -hmm. you know, dead on. Um, Andy, you know, after she did the Mississippi Goddamn song, uh, Andy worked out the details for her to leave Cold Picks, her record company. And on February 22nd, um, an announcement appeared in Cashbox that Nina was now recording exclusively for Philips. I guess they made electronics and they made a record. They had a record company hmm. deal. And I also, know that. I know, right? I had to learn it myself. Um, also, during this time, Nina found out that her friend Lorraine had, was seriously ill with cancer. Um and in regards to her civil rights activism, Nina Simone saying, you know, Mississippi, the Mississippi goddamn. <laughs> um, somebody said something that I thought was brilliant, and this is this is what I. It's it's just brilliant, but because they said her litany of racial injustice, and a single that a signal that she too had found her sp- spiritual assignment. Mm, wow, spiritual assignment. Yes. I love that. Because she did. To use her talent for the singular cause of freeing her people Mm -hmm. and not incidentally herself, she never suggested the task was easy and anyone willing to listen, willing to heed her exhortations could engage in the struggle at her side. And I think that's right. Nina Mm -hmm. with Mississippi Goddamn and all the nonsense that was going on in 1963 <clears throat> you know, um, the killings and the racial divisiveness, which I think is pretty um, dead on these mm-hmm. days. She found her spiritual assignment. Mm. And, that, is, um, that just could not be more beautifully said. Yeah. I thought somebody wrote that and I thought, oh, that's brilliant. In 1964, she recorded the song, Don't Let Me don't let me be misunderstood for her album Broadway Blues Ballads, and I want to say it aggravated Nina to no end when white groups 
did covers of the same song first done by black groups got more publicity than the original singers mm. you know um that and it, it happened really quickly like say she released don't let me be misunderstood in in march somebody would be releasing the same single it doesn't happen today but within four or five months completely you know different and because they were white they got more attention and publicity and she said i deeply resent that it mm. makes me very bitter and mad and it has for years she said to one interviewer that's understandable yeah that's super understandable completely you know you're writing the song it's your song or regardless if she's writing it or right. not it's your song first and then and then you know somebody fun. comes out behind you and gets a hit like four months so this happened yeah, especially to her when four months later is four months later yeah and it just happened to her with um, don't let me be misunderstood. The group, the British group, the Animals, recorded it and had a hit. Mm. And Nina never forgot that. You know, she bothered her. And when Eric Burden, the Animals' lead singer, introduced himself after one of her concerts, um, she let him know it. She was like, "So you're the honky motherfucker who stole my song and got a hit out of it." And he was kind of taking it back. Yeah. And he was like, you know what? I'll admit that was your rendition that inspired us to record the song. And besides, the animals having a hit with it has paved the way for you in Europe. They're waiting for you. And she was looking at him, and then she went, my name is Nina Simone. And she extended her hand, and she said, sit down. Amazing. I love it. Yeah. But I, I can thought, totally see her after watching so many interviews of her. I can see just what you did. I can see mm -hmm. that all happening. She's comfortable with silences. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, in 1965, she released the album, I Put a Spell on You. Her remake oh, of Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know, wildly entertaining mm -hmm. song that he wrote, which it, he is like incredible to do a podcast on, by the way. Mm, yeah. Incredible. With all them damn kids and stuff. But anyway... <laughs> That's a whole nother story we'll talk about. But people should go on YouTube, Little Rocker Babies, and listen to Screaming Jay Hawkins and then listen to Nina's because oh, yeah. it was a, a huge hit. And we'll uh, have to put both on the... Um, it might have a mashup or something somewhere on there. I'm sure those little kids will know. Those youngins will do it. Um, <clears throat> but <laughs> Nina had another solo concert at Carnegie Hall in 1965, January 15th, and it's important because... At the post-concert for this, it was her solo concert, her her parents finally attended. And oh, her wow. dad was just bursting with joy, and he was bragging about her, and, you know, but her mom didn't say anything. Oh. And she was hurt, you know. Yeah. Her disappointment um, hurt because Miss Mazzy was there, and Miss Mazzy told her that, you know, her mom had expressed a lot of pride. And Nina said, you know, I just longed for her to say it just once, she said mm -hmm. in her memoir, that she was proud of me, you know. Um, and a few days before the Conniger concert at night, uh, you know, it was on January 15th, but a few days before that, Lorraine was dying. Oh. And she called Nina to her hospital bed. And she said to Nina, she said, Nina, they say I'm not going to get better. You know, and I, you know, but I must get well, Nina. You know, I must go down to the South. I've been a revolutionary all my life, but I've got to go down there to find out what kind of revolutionary am I am. Mm. 
And all Nina could do was listen and take Lorraine's haunted words as a challenge. And Lorraine died three days before she performed at Carnegie Hall. So 12 hours after the final applause at Carnegie Hall, um, Nina performed at Lorraine's funeral. Oh, that's so sad. You know, she was very broken up about her. Mm -hmm. That was her close friend and she loved her. Um, On March 21st, you know, 1965, as, as everybody would know, Martin Luther King began his second march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and he was joined by several religious leaders, including rabbis and nuns and a crowd of 25,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the march itself went without incident, you know, because they had a heavy security around mm-hmm. it, of course, this time. But, um, you know, at the end of it, uh, the protesters could reach the steps of the state capitol and there was going to be a concert with Peter, Paul, and Mary, Nina, um, Harry Belafonte, Sammy Davis Jr. It was called Stars for Freedom. Oh. And I want to say that, oh. you know, that march that King did for the Rocker Baby spurred the passage of the Voters' Rights Act of 1965. Wow. That, you know, forbade the disenfranchising of um, voting, you know, based on race or color. Um, and Nina said, you know what? Those kids out in the backwoods knew I was part of their fight before I knew it myself. Oh, wow. Nina said, and she said, that's what made her convinced that she had to, um, join them. And also, you know, besides Lorraine dying, Malcolm X, you know, died and he had been gunned down in Harlem back in February 21st. And she was especially close to Betty Shabazz um, and their children because they had moved to the Mount Vernon um, area for safety. And mm-hmm. it's sad that, you know, after he split with Elijah Muhammad, that he was he died. Mm-hmm. So she was really, really starting to get in, get into the civil rights movement at this time. Um, she returned to the studio a few months later in May and recorded the tour de force session of Center Man, which is one of my favorites. And the Rocker Babies need to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, she did a 10 minute version of it. And Gabby's going to tell you about it. But it's a traditional spiritual song um, from a Bible verse. Cinnamon is one of Nina Simone's most famous songs. An African-American traditional spiritual song, the lyrics describe a sinner attempting to hide from divine justice on Judgment Day. It was recorded by many artists before Nina. She recorded her 10-minute-plus version on her 1965 album, Pastel Blues. She learned the lyrics of this English song in her childhood, when it was used at revival meetings by her mother, a Methodist minister, to help people confess their sins. In the early days of her career during the early 60s, when she was heavily involved in the New York Greenwich Village scene, Simone often used the long piece to end her live performances. Simone's version of Cinnamon has been sampled many times, most notably by Kanye West for the Talib Kweli song Get By, the Timberland song Oh Timberland, and Felix de Housecat for the Verve remixed series. People think that Nina did it as a, a frantic plea for absolution. You oh, know, wow. such a good version. I know. And the live versions went on even longer, they said. But, you know, Nina said she revealed in all of this. She said, I feel emotion is dying when we feel, you know, what we feel is dying. Everything is so orderly. Raising your voice has become a crime. Mm-hmm. I want to evoke joy, sadness, pain. 
She said, the first thing I saw in the morning when I woke up was my black face in the bathroom mirror. And that fixed the way I felt about myself for the rest of the day, that I was a black skinned woman in a country where you could be killed because of that one fact. And all of this inner turmoil, turmoil fueled her next studio composition, which is what we were playing before this, before the mm. podcast, which is for women, you know, and it's on her album, Wild as the Wind. And it basically, you know, as we know, each verse described a woman who was an archetype of an era, like yeah. Aunt Sarah, the Mammy, Sophronia, the light-skinned mulatto, um, Sweet Thing, who was a young prostitute, and Peaches, a surly little street tough. But, the you know, My Skin is Black is so, pays such homage, you know. And Nina said all the song did was to tell what entered the minds of most black women in America when they thought about themselves, their complexion, their hair, straight, kinky, natural, whichever, and what other women thought of them. Black women didn't know what the hell they wanted because they were defined by the things they didn't control. Mm. Wow. And I just, I mean, that's one of the things, you know, working out the outline is that I wanted to kind of tell it in her viewpoint, mm -hmm. especially on some of these things, because, you know, she was so articulate with explaining how all of this meant, mm -hmm. you know, to people. And it didn't stop people from coming to see her black, mm -hmm. white, green, yellow, you know, um, but she's really got deep into the movement, you know, because in January 1966, she performed a six benefit concert for a court, which is the Congress of Racial Equality in the Northeast. And, you know, despite I got to give Andy credit because despite the lack of formal training in management mm -hmm. or the music business, he had caught on fast and he understood what Nina needed at each performance to make her comfortable. You ready mm -hmm. for it? So from sound checks, it, she needed at least two hours ahead of time to deal with that. And to the microphone, she needed two upright, one with a miniature, miniature boom. Is this what we got? A miniature boom? Mm -mm. No? Oh, wow. <laughs> see, I'm glad you know. If this is a condenser mic. Oh, see. See, I'm glad you know the difference. <laughs> I don't know the difference. Um, and to a Steinway piano, she needed tuned mm -hmm. at 440 concert pitch. You probably know what that means. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Well, A440 is standard tuning, but I mean, I could go all about frequencies and tuning. That's a whole other thing. But yeah, so it just had to be tuned to A440. To 440, okay. That's good. Okay, but there's all sorts of other things about... There's some pretty cool stuff when you get into frequencies, but maybe not for this show because it will never, will keep going on forever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I understand. The dressing room had to be clean and with a mirror. That makes sense. Preferably full length. And Andy, you know, did a great job of handling all the finances for these concerts. Um, Nina got half beforehand and the rest was delivered at intermission, the money. Um, oh, wow. I, yeah. So not at the end. Mm-mm. That actually is really smart, though, because then promoters could not pay and you've already done the show. Mm hmm. You know, and along with her music, you know, her stage dress, as we saw mm -hmm. in that video, became more provocative. You know, she drew more attention to her hairstyles. Um, I did love it that she when she when she went short, she called her cro close cropped 
curls, cut of tight curls. She called them a freedom cap. Oh. You know. And so in 1966, she found more reason to complain about the music business. This is going to be interesting. Mm. That's why we got to do that series. When Cole Picks, her former label, released an album, they released an album. She was already on to Phillips, and they released an album about her oh, really? called Nina Simone with Strings. These record companies. Yeah, well, they, they've got you... Uh... They've, they've got you signed. So. She's releasing albums with one this com- one country, company, and this other company comes and releases mm. another album. That muddies the water. But anyway, she appeared at a Black Power rally in Philadelphia, you know, by Stokely Carmichael, who she loved, and um, she made no apologies for his confrontational tactics. She liked it. Um, she signed with RCA at the end of 1966 and would eventually release at least five albums for them. But wow. in 1967, while on a Forest City tour with a young, very popular black comedian and actor at the time named Bill Cosby, she had a mental illness episode. Oh. In her memoir, she said that she couldn't sleep and her head was filled with music and snatches from speeches or conversations. But she went blank, and she lost all track of time. Oh, wow. Um, and when Andy would come in, he'd have to make a noise to break her trance. Um, and by the time she got to, like, the fourth date in New York, she was barely functioning. Andy found her in the dressing room staring into, like, a mirror while putting brown makeup into her hair. Um, and he tried to talk to her, and she insisted he was her nephew, not her husband. Oh, crazy. And she said, we're going to fly back to heaven. She started talking nutty, you know. She started saying, we're going to fly back to heaven together. And she told him she was his Grandma Moses. Um, she said that she looked over at Andy in her memoirs and said that she could see right through his skin. As if he was covered in plastic. Ooh. Um, she at times she lost interest in Lisa, and she'd even she'd even say leave little notes around the house going, "Why did I have a baby?" Oh God. So, um, you know, in all this, Nina found another avenue to express her blues, which I definitely want the youngins to go out and listen to. Which is, I wish I knew how it would be, would feel to be free. It was written by someone, and it was on one of her albums, but it's a great song. Um, but Andy was worrying a lot during this time, you know, about her provocative material, her outspokenness. You know, and he was worried that it could cost her in getting booked um, because other black artists had complained at the time that, you know, there was an economic boycott going on if they spoke out during the civil rights movement. Um, but you know, the funny thing about Nina, she didn't, she didn't focus on, she didn't care. She, -hmm. in fact, she did focus on race during her, a lot of her Mm -hmm. performances during this time. And she would say in an interview, I'm going to sing about the race problem. It's needed. Mm -hmm. You know, I know it does good because I feel my audience knows I'm not just an entertainer. I'm a colored woman. Don't you think bringing things out in the open is good? You know? Um, and she said, there's nothing superficial about me. There's no fakery. Most people have their own thing to fight with. I'm fighting just for honesty 
and to grow by singing and being black. Mm. And when one white music uh, writer in London told her that, um, told her that, you know, he told her, let me see here. Uh, That's right. I have it. So when a white music writer in London told her that he had discovered rhythm and blues 15 years earlier, she cut him off before he could even explain. And she said, well, you've been a Negro for 15 years. So you know little of what it's like. I've been one for 900 years. Hmm. So it, it was what it was. But, you know, by 1969, Nina and Andy were having major problems in their marriage. And we'll discuss that when we come back. Check back for the next episode on the High Priestess Soul Series Part 2 of Nina Simone. For behind-the-scenes looks or more information, or just to be part of the conversation, please join us at www.rockabyespodcast.com.